Sometimes the story of Doreen Jane Vincent's short days in this world seem like a fairy tale. And no, not the Disney stuff I'm steeped in now that I'm quarantined with my princess-loving seven-year-old. I'm talking about a story straight out of Grimm's, that giant book of unspeakables that I would sneak terrified glances at as a child. Doreen's story is steeped in all the classic elements that have resonated through all our childhoods, making millions of dollars while giving us nightmares for almost two centuries. There's Donna, Doreen's mother who's been largely written out of the story. Sharon is the wicked stepmother who Mark says Doreen railed against in her diary. There are Sarah and Paul, who shared half Doreen's blood and whom Mark says she resented as the favored offspring. Jimmy Farnham, the gentleman farmer, and his wife, Laura West, rented Mark and Sharon the desolate but beautiful estate on which Doreen found herself in June 1988. Doreen's aunts, Debbie and Carol, tried as hard as they could to be the girls' fairy godmothers, but they were just girls themselves, 11 and 12 when she was born. This story has mystics, villains, and even a set of townspeople who laughed when Donna and her sisters tried to tell them the beast was real. Doreen's short life was rife with ogres and dragons and demons, setting forth to destroy a little girl before she could reach her 13th birthday. But there's no prince, and who needs a prince anyway? Maybe Doreen did once. For her, the princes were the celebrities she wrote about in the diary that her father unceremoniously burned in the driveway. I can only imagine who she dreamt of as her white knight. Back then, my loves were Kurt Cameron and Ralph Macchio. Built as sweet, harmless good guys with blinding white smiles and hearts of gold, they didn't feel worlds away as I leafed through Tiger Beat magazine. But princes are not always perfect, and they usually disappoint when they show up to save the princess from whatever evil force has laid its hands on her. Usually that evil force is a woman, all Prince Charming has to do to save Snow White from the Wicked Queen's evil spell is to kiss her. Fun fact, in Grimm's version, the kiss actually dislodges the sliver of poison apple on which the princess has choked. Sleeping Beauty only escapes from Maleficent's clutches because Prince Philip just happens to be there with his trusty sword. Prince Eric sears the wreck of his bow into the sea witch to save Ariel, a girl who'd given up her voice to try to win a man who didn't even recognize her face. And let's never forget the Beast, who locks the beauty up in his tower in a fit of rage. She learns to love him, of course, but not before providing a masterclass on what Stockholm Syndrome looks like. Every person, every character in Doreen's story plays an important role. For now, let's concentrate on Doreen's maternal family, on her mother, Donna, her aunts, Carol and Debbie, and her grandmother, Jane. Unlike in most Disney movies, Doreen's maternal line is very much alive and very present. It's also paramount, as always, to keep the focus on the princess, the heroine herself, Doreen Jane. If Disney got their hands on our girl, the character would come dressed in purple, accessorized with purple Reeboks and a denim jacket. Princess Doreen would have mini roller skates, a tiny diary and scrapbook, and her soundtrack would feature George Michael. Mark's always been very vocal about his lost princess, and has lamented to the press what she might have grown up to be. A teacher, he told one journalist. A nurse, he told another. Stewardess, I want to scream when I'm reading these articles. She wanted to be a stewardess. And Mark wasn't the only one who was wrong about his daughter. Here again is the owner of 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road and Mark's landlord, Jimmy Farnham. And she was 
spooky. I mean, she was sort of, she was at 13 or 14. She was, I, I only saw her a few times, but she was very sort of goth. I mean, very, uh, she reminded me of, uh, the, the young uh, uh, daughter in Beetlejuice. I mean, she was, she was always wearing black and very black hair, very pretty, and, uh, but always very quiet and seemed kind of like, uh, oppositional. Okay. He had some troubles. They had some troubles with her discipline-wise. This bothered me, because not only do I love Lydia Dietz, I love Doreen. She's so much more than a troubled child. So I wrote a letter to Winona Ryder. Dear Winona, I've never written to a celebrity before. My fan letters pleading to get Rags to Riches back on the air, circa 1988, don't count. That show was about a self-made millionaire who learns what love is when he adopts six orphan girls. It was the sort of fluff I watched before graduating to grittier stuff like Mermaids and Heathers. Not that I haven't written you a thousand letters in my mind, thanking you for Veronica Sawyer or extolling the kindness of Kim Boggs and Edward Scissorhands. Now that I am a mother, I find comfort and solace in the no-nonsense fearlessness of Joyce Byers from Stranger Things. One of the first movies that shocked a 15-year-old me into realizing that adulthood could be scary and fun at the same time featured you charging gas and snacks to your dad's credit card. All hail Elana Pierce. But I'm writing to you now about a real-life story that you featured in very prominently, that of Polly Class. I was 15 when Polly went missing from your hometown of Petaluma, California. I was stunned that something so sudden and violent and frightening could be true, that a man could take you out of your bedroom, away from the reach of your family and your friends, and end your life forever. I've always been drawn to tragic stories like this. In a world where a man can come and spirit you away in the middle of the night, how can any girl be safe? It's that dark thing that drew me into the story of 12-year-old Doreen Vincent, who disappeared over 31 years ago. In June 1988, she vanished from her career criminal father's rented farmhouse in Wallingford, Connecticut, just a few miles from my hometown. He had been taking photos of her in her underwear and didn't report her missing for three days when his ex-wife discovered her baby was gone and called the cops. Since then, Doreen has never been found, and Mark, her father, simply lives his life. That is, after burning her diary, being seen running into a forest with what looked like a body, and telling us he will see Doreen in glory. I bet you get a lot of letters like this, telling you about a little girl someone hopes you can save, because you brought national attention to Polly's case and helped her bring her body home. But Doreen's story, in the strangest way, involves you, too. A man I interviewed in the course of my work on this case, the landlord whose house Doreen disappeared from, told me she reminded him of one of your very best roles, Lydia Dietz in Beetlejuice. Doreen was spooky, he remembered, always dressed in black and very obstinate, someone her father and stepmother had discipline problems with. While Doreen was certainly an unhappy little girl in many ways, she was far from the goth problem child this man remembers her as. No matter how dark her days were, she still had a lot of love in her life, and someone took that from her forever. She was, I think, a lot like Lydia, in that she was sweet and sensitive and needed some escape from that house in Connecticut where she'd been dragged by her father and her stepmother. As the investigator on season two of Faded Out and the host of Sticky Beak, I am dedicated to finding out what happened to this little girl 
and holding responsible everyone who failed her. We need help. We need exposure. We need to strike while the iron is hot. I would therefore humbly beg for your help. Just like Lydia Dietz was there for Adam and Barbara, struggling to make sense of the afterworld and find their way through, you can use your power to do something good, again. Because if you want to fuck with the eagles, you have to learn to fly. Very truly yours, Jessica Fritz of Wired. This is Sticky Beak, Episode 8, Lydia. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children. Mark Vincent, the wannabe prince of our story, didn't have a lot back in June 1988, but he had rich friends. Mark was handsome and boasted the quick money he'd earn off the jobs he was working in Greenwich, on Connecticut's Gold Coast. That's where I think he earned in trade the antique furniture that so impressed Roseanne Poloni. And his Corvette. It was a far cry from the blue car he stole from his boss, Frank Iamel, or the so-called land barge in which he fled to his brother Brad's. If Mark's head dipped slightly under the surface, and it often did, he'd seek out jobs from the ladies who loved him, for better or for worse. That includes his mother, Lori Vincent, her best friend, Georgia Lewis, and an ever-shifting bevy of admirers. I picture these women as the singing blonde beer wenches who swoon over Beauty and the Beast Gaston. But Mark also had two adorable kids with his faithful wife, Sharon, working hard to be the woman Mark always wanted her to be, whether she liked it or not. Sharon had been married before, but now she was Mark's wife, and they were moving to a castle on the hill. I don't know why Mark left Bridgeport for Wallingford, and Sharon and Doreen aren't here to tell me. I do, however, have my suspicions. I interviewed an old neighborhood friend of Doreen's, Mike, who remembered when she would play with him in the streets and pass the hours on the stoop with his grandmother, surveying the Bridgeport neighborhood. Mike caught Doreen at tag one day, and before he knew it, Mark's hands were around his throat, lifting him off the ground. No one touches my daughter, Mark told Mike, who was only saved when his mother screamed at Mark through her window. Mark's rage was boiling over in a house where everyone knew their neighbors. This wasn't the first time Mark had moved Doreen either. She went to more schools in her short time on this earth than some people attend in their lifetimes. But Doreen was a good big sister, doting on little Sarah and Paul. I don't know if she really entertained bitter thoughts about the attentions the two little ones got, and they never really seemed to factor into the story of what happened to their sister, save for the account of Sharon shielding them from Doreen's screams. In the true crime stories that we hear about missing children, children like Sabrina Eisenberg and Madeline McCann, one of the first things that parents always do when they discover their child has disappeared is to check on the child's siblings. For Mark and Sharon, there appears to have been no such concern for the little ones, or at least not in their official versions. When Debbie and I first met Paul back at Gouveia Vineyards in June 2019, to honor the 31st anniversary of Doreen's disappearance, he handed her a pile of photos. One shows Sharon waving behind the three children as Doreen holds Sarah and Paul atop a giant statue of an elephant. Paul tore off the photo of his mother to take with him to Teresa Lyons in Florida and left the other piece, with him and his sisters remaining, on Sharon's gravestone in Danbury. It reminded me of a happy family photo I have of Mark's mother, Lori, with three of her other children, 
Donna, and baby Doreen. Lori pieced the Polaroid together with scotch tape after Mark tore it to pieces. Sarah and Paul always haunt me, because no matter what happened, they were just babies in the house where I believe Doreen met her fate. They can't confirm or deny a story passed on to me by Sherry Knotts, another Westwood student who some had seen and believed to be Doreen. Just who passed it on to her, she doesn't exactly remember, but she thinks it was private investigator Rick Novia or Wallingford police detective Peter Cameron, whom she had labeled Inspector Gadget. According to Sherry, the story was that Mark had beaten Doreen to death when he didn't like the clothes she had chosen to wear to a dance. A dance, I asked? School was out, and Doreen had gone to Wallingford to start her summer. So I texted Kate, Doreen's friend from Westwoods. Kate wrote back almost immediately. Our school never had dances. The senior classes in high school had a dinner banquet near the end of the year, but no dances. Any parties, I asked? Anything she would have dressed up for? Kate didn't remember anything like that. We didn't have any dress-up parties for our small middle school class, she told me. No one's memory is perfect. But we all know how important a lady's clothes are to Mark, and Donna has told me he always insisted Doreen dress like an old lady. So the idea that someone in authority had heard that story and passed it on to Sherry nagged me. Who said that? Where did that story come from? Is it something real, or has it just been cobbled together from dozens of memories left to languish for 32 years? We won't ever know, because even though Doreen's case has been declared a homicide, I think that opportunity is long past. What I wouldn't give to be back there in June 1988, to know what really happened to Doreen, to watch Debbie and Carol and Donna try, and try, to get the police to light up their pitchforks and go storm the castle. It's been that way for years, just like Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether tried to make a happy and healthy life for Princess Aurora, hiding away in the forest from Maleficent, Donna's mother and aunts have exhausted just about every avenue to try to find justice for their girl. He followed up yeah, several there's been a few that over the years. I mean, interviews with and stuff. But actually, nobody's really. I mean, they might have wrote one story. They would right. come over and do one article for the yeah, paper, and they would the... put the article in maybe the Hartford Current, and that would be it. You wouldn't hear anything until somebody else is going to updo it another um, reporter. Right. Never the police. Never, Never Wallingford. the Wallingford police. And you're going up, I mean, you guys, I was trying to tell you this. The Wallingford police, okay, from day one. The reason they don't give you anything is that they don't have anything. They really didn't do an investigation. And they're probably embarrassed, and they should be. That guy that you talked to... Oh. Demand may have never even heard of the case. That's how Stupid. dumb they are. And the guy that I called last year acted very aloof. He didn't know. Cold he of was the one that was. Yeah, he was supposed to call me back. You know, he's he's the head of the case. And, you know, how do you not know anything? Oh, I'll call you back. Well, when would that be? Is that what he said to you? I don't know anything, and that's why he had to call you back. I don't know. He said I. I said I watch all these shows people get found after 30 years people people there's dna there's new dna there's things you could do now there's things you didn't do then that maybe you can do now i mean let's talk about it yeah is is there any way we can go back and look at some of the things that were found that he said she was wearing that day 
Nothing was ever done then. Why can't we go back? I watch these shows all the time. I watched uh, us. I was just telling them a psychic that that um before that. You know, I was telling you something before that about the, well the psychic. We, we listened to the tape today. The woman brought. She she was insistent. She was gonna find this woman. She was gonna find this woman. She walked to the end of this road. It was a long, lot more of a story than that. And she found the lady. She did it on her own time because the police didn't want to give her their time. She walked to the end of the road, kind of searched through the desert, and she found her. She was a real psychic. You just heard Debbie mention the psychic which the family brought in to try to find Doreen. The more hard-nosed of you might scoff at that notion, but these women were desperate. And I think that after 32 years, we all need to maintain an open mind. What's a good fairy tale without an oracle or a mystic? I also think that even the idea of connection with someone you've lost, to know they're safe and happy, even if they are no longer with us, is tempting. Donna's reading by a woman named Colette was courtesy of the women's aunt Sadie. Colette saw Doreen somewhere rural, by a barn, and she also lands it on the word hunter, which just so happens to be Mark's middle name. Just recently, I learned that members of Mark's family used a psychic too back in October 2016. I'll play more of her audio and Colette's in a future episode. Here's Vanessa. She's right here, and she, this kid can't be happier right now. So she's just happy that everybody's assembling, and it's like a little family reunion for her anyways. Let me pause here for a second and remind everyone that I am not a judge, jury, or executioner. I have no direct proof that Mark Vincent killed his daughter. It appears no one does. And Mark still wants to be the prince in this story, passing the blame for her absence onto some outside evil forces. When my producer and husband Joe first called Mark back in December of 2018, Mark was quick to lay the blame on pedophile rings, claiming they were getting bigger and bigger every day and funded by those in high-powered government positions. The ones with the juice, he called them. In the past, Mark had claimed Doreen went missing by the hands of another villain, an uncle of hers, that had engaged in some troubling behavior. That's a huge thorny issue, and I will have to tackle it in another episode. But one name I've never known Mark to utter is that of Haddon Clark, a cannibalistic cross-dressing serial killer of women and children. Haddon is now serving a life sentence under his new name, Kristen Bluefin. His crimes are rivaled by his brother, another cannibal killer, who is funnily enough named Brad. Haddon spent a lot of time in Meriden, Wallingford's neighboring town, and claims that in the 80s, he stole an unnamed little girl from a bowling alley on Wallingford's Route 5. Haddon says he buried the girl by Castle Craig, an observation tower in Meriden's Hanging Hills. But I've discussed the man himself with three sources, an author who wrote a book called Born to Kill, Haddon's investigator turned pen pal, and the detective who investigated one of Haddon's most notorious crimes. And I think we can rule him out, because like all three sources told me, when a child disappears, the monster you're looking for is usually close to home. Donna's sisters, Debbie and Carol, knew all about the monster lurking under the bed, literally. From the time he'd moved in with Donna and baby Doreen, Mark set out to befriend his 11- and 12-year-old sisters-in-law during long days together, fishing and romping through Huntington State Park. But when Mark was alone with the girls, bad things would happen. Debbie and Carol told us about it from the first night. They'd been anonymous for Jason Berry's readers in the Record Journal 18 years before, back in 2001, but they weren't going to be anonymous anymore. The story came out in bits and pieces, haltingly, but what came out was heartbreaking. One night, Mark and Donna were out drinking, and Mark hit a car on the way home, 
The two were spotted by the police and Mark sped to get away, pulling into the driveway with his lights off and avoiding arrest, at least that time. As Donna busied herself in the house with baby Doreen, Mark went to Debbie's bedroom. That was one of the only times he'd assault Debbie outside of the bed she shared with Carol while their parents worked third shift. But he woke me up that night and he told me, and you came in. He came in and he had me in the bathroom. I don't remember, just something inappropriate. I remember that. In the bathroom? I don't remember that. Yeah, but it was more than that. It's because I remember getting sleep sometimes and him. I told you. He knew it was him. Creep around. Creep around the floor. The creep around was a specialty of Mark's. After Carol and Debbie went to bed, Mark would sneak upstairs and flatten himself under their bed. Then, in a waking nightmare, he would reach up to touch the girls where he could touch them. In Barry's article, Debbie remembers how she woke up one night with Mark on top of her in his underwear. She was Doreen's age. But Mark didn't just stalk the girls at night. At Donna's birthday in January 2019, Carol remembered Mark taking advantage of the kindness of another neighborhood friend of Lori's named June. He used to work with June all the time. He used to go there a lot too. She had a pond. <laughs> We used to go swim in there, remember? She used to go swim in there all the time. She already did. She June lived upstairs and Mark lived downstairs. When was this? I kind of remember. We were about a, you were you were with him at the time. Um, oh my God, I, was, I sort of kind of do remember. I was probably around 11, 12. I was young. How do you remember? You know, I'm not she so does. looking at her like <laughs> Carol's a ninja. No, Carol's like, hey, I, I stored everything away. I think you're right. I do. We used to go to her house because we used to go swimming. You've got to be the difficult one again. What is she doing? She got to use a weird cup. The solo cup. Okay, they don't get burned. I'm surprised yeah, she was your blue cup. Well, you know, we used to do a lot of work for her. Okay. No, no, the blue cup is here. You lived in the basement. I do remember that. Yeah, it was a bed down in the basement. We used to use the bathroom to change and do our clothes. How the hell do you remember that? Look, look, look. Come here. Wow. Look at You're doing a good job. You don't want to know why. I can't do my right hand. I think I have. Um... Well, well, yeah, actually, we do want to know why. Why I remember? Yeah. Well, because that's where the abuse took place. When he was abusive, did he ever let on that that was happening, like, on regular hours? Was it just like everything was normal? Did he just act like Yeah. it was did, cool? Yeah. Like, I don't know about What do you mean by he was about the battle? Like, did he act like there was, like... No, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Because this was the abuse was mostly happening at night, right? What I brought daylight. What I know. What I know was at night, and okay. that's he would act normal during the day. Yes. Just like nothing was. Yes. Right. Like he didn't do it, and I pretend to because I'm like I'm supposed to be sleeping. Not something else. And he didn't. No, I'm fine. You know, kind of shoot him away, and then he bothered her, and you know, I was kind of just like. Not me anymore, so. And you, know you said, I mean? oh, go ahead. If go she ahead. didn't wake up, and then she doesn't even know, so. Okay. Well, this is weird. Just a weird. And broad daylight with you, you said? Yeah. Like outside, Saturday. or? On Saturday, no, there was that bed there. Whose house? June's. 
And who? I don't know. Who, who was the lady upstairs? I never. I don't know. The lady upstairs. Yeah, she was upstairs, and I guess there was a bed downstairs. I don't know what the bed was there for. In which house was this? June's house. In New Fairfield. I don't know where the house was. I don't remember where June lived. That was ready. I don't remember where June down the road from. Uh... They're just playing. Oh, I thought somebody was. They were. What's her name? Down the road from Georgia. Down the road from Georgia? I think. I'm kind of vaguely remember June now that you're saying it. Sort of, kind of. Oh my God. Just to, um. She's a nice lady. I mean, we met her a couple times. She'd give us something to drink every so often. That was all. I don't remember you. Go swimming. Huh? I don't remember you being there. A lot of times. A lot of times. Yeah. We'd go swimming. You don't remember? I, now that she's saying it, I remember the name, but that's it. I don't remember another thing. Just the name. He'd keep you back. He was younger than me, so. He'd keep you back? Hmm. Yeah. forgot something, he'd come back. I was still changing. So I found... Get the because we were getting ready to go out there this one. Is that a pool? A lake. I it was a lake. <laughs> I mean, even I can tell you. Lake, pond, I don't remember what it was. I remember going to the backyard. There was something in the backyard. It was some kind of swimming area. We were getting ready for swimming. Carol was kind enough to have another conversation with me after Donna's birthday. She didn't remember the creep around. So how soon after you met him did that abuse start? Right, because I know from what I've heard from Debbie is like he used to creep around the bed. Do you remember any of that yourself? She remember. She used to tell me it was here again last night. Oh wow! Well, this year, I said, "Well, I guess I sleep a lot heavier than she did." You know. Carol doesn't remember a lot of the details surrounding the abuse, which happened not only at her parents but also the girl's grandparents' house when they were a bit older. Mark plied the girls with alcohol. Or I drank once and that was it. I, I got so sick. Because you drank too much? Oh, yeah. I never drank before. That was the first and that was the last. How old do you think you are? 17? was legal age, Dad. Okay. Is he, like, encouraging you to drink, too? Oh, shots. He had shots all set up and ready to go. Yeah. And I never drank before, so that was something totally new. Yeah, shots will get you, right? Huh. <laughs> and, nope. I don't, I don't want to drink because of that. Right. Never again, it was just so disgusting, the feeling. Carol also spoke to me more in depth about what had happened at June's, where Mark would take the girls to swim. She had repressed a lot, including the swimming itself. She just remembered what Mark would do to her. So I don't think he was abusing Debbie in the daytime. Do you think he singled you out? Why do you think that? I don't know. Um, maybe because I was pretty insecure. I was young. Yeah. I was heavier. Okay. Okay. Did he, did he, when he was, 
So he's waiting outside the bathroom or he's in the bedroom. I mean, does, is he saying anything to you or is he just doing what he wants to do? I don't remember. I don't remember. I remember him coming up and kind of, I don't know. Kind of like a seduce almost. Okay. I was young. I mean, to, for that, I was just like, what? You know, I was kind of embarrassed. Yeah. You know? But is that sort of, do you think he was making you feel embarrassed because that sort of plays into his ability to take advantage of you? Probably. Yeah. And I, I didn't quite, I didn't quite, I thought it was wrong. But I was, you know, I'm like, oh my God, it's my sister's husband. What is he doing, you know? And yeah. Was he taking it further than he was when you guys were in the bed at night? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, that went a little further. Carol and Debbie eventually told their mother, Jane, but the nightmare was swept under the rug and life went on. He told my mother, eventually, it was like, ma, he keeps coming, you know, he keeps coming in the room, you know? Right. Now, did he ever... What do you mean? And of course, back then, they just kind of dismissed it, got us married, pregnant, she, you know, it was kind of a, something you just dismissed, I guess, I don't know. Well, you know, for me, it would have been a big thing, but back then it was like something you kind of swept under the carpet. You know, it'll go away. It'll go away. When I talked to your mom, um, she seemed like she was scared of him. Well, I think we all were somewhat, you know, and I still am. Mark did try to bribe Debbie to tell her parents she lied about the abuse, offering her $200. She refused. And here is where I want you to remember the housework money. Sharon and Mark said Doreen took with her in her wallet. When she left a house where she barely lived and where she might have died, Doreen's housework money was a bell that was ringing in my head. So I did the 2020 math. 50 to $70 for Doreen in 1988 would have been 109 to $153 to her now, to a 12-year-old, stuffed with all the care a 12-year-old girl can muster into a wallet that was found empty over a year later. I think whether Sharon and Mark actually paid Doreen for housework or for anything else might always be a mystery, but it still makes me wonder. Because if they did give her that money, and the money wasn't in the wallet found in the 1989 search warrant, that means someone took it out. Last spring, I sat down with my friend Karen to discuss what could have inspired Mark's sudden flight to Wallingford, to that rural castle where things would go to hell in a handbasket almost immediately. Can you introduce yourself and let me know what you do for work? Uh, my name is Karen Calcaterra. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist. So a licensed clinical social worker could do a lot of different things. I do psychotherapy, so one-on-one -on -one patient. Do you do a lot of work with uh, young girls? Yes, Okay. probably more than 50% of my caseload is teenagers. And what kind of topics do you cover? Just about anything? A lot of, you know, parents, problems with parents, a lot of sex, talking about sex, losing your virginity, not losing your virginity, that kind of stuff. Um, anxiety, fear, especially since the election. Mm -hmm. Very infrequently sexual abuse because they keep it very much a secret. Okay. So if you have a kid who you think that's what's going on, it could be months, even years before they'll actually talk about it because it's so taboo. Karen and I walked through snippets of information gathered from hours of interviews with some of the key players in Doreen's story. 
I started by asking what sexual abuse might look like in a child. And I think it's just as taboo now, not just the sexual aspect of it, but being disloyal to the parent. Okay. Kids just don't do it. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. I think it's not just the disloyalty factor too, right? It's the fear. Yes. That because you're going back with that parent. Yes. Anyway, okay. Well, there's fear and then there's also this mixture. The reason that sexual abuse is so insidious is because there's the mixture of this parent's violating or this person close to me is violating my trust, but that makes me special Mm -hmm. in a way that makes me feel weird, but I'm being told that it's okay, Mm -hmm. but something inside me knows it's not okay but my body's responding, so I must want to do this. Right. So it becomes this like convoluted, really messed up uh, series of uh, thoughts and thinking, and then the perpetrator plays on that to keep the child loyal and quiet and in fear. You know, a lot of times a perpetrator will tell the, the victim that they're going to be killed or the family members are going to be killed. <sighs> Is that, I mean, would you just characterize that as like all part of the grooming process? Yes. Definitely. Okay. And it would probably be, because I, I remember reading about this somewhere, that the child's body will still have a sexual response. Yes. Right? Yes. Even though, okay. You Yes, often. And that's why there's so much guilt and shame associated with sexual abuse. If somebody walks up and punches you in the face, mm-hmm. you get no pleasure out of that. Right. So you're not afraid to say, <clears throat> somebody assaulted me. But if somebody touches you in a way and you're, chi- you're, you're a child and your body is like a machine, so it responds, there's the whole, well, I must have wanted that to happen to me because it felt pleasurable in my privates or whatever. And so the perpetrator can use that to say, well, you, you wanted it, it felt so good, you know? Mm-hmm. And children believe anything that, old, you know, that somebody in, in a position of authority says to them. Karen and I discuss Mark's history of sexually abusing Debbie and Carol, and I asked what that might have meant for Doreen. So the question you would ask yourself is why would a healthy uh, 18-year-old male be interested in a young, you know, adolescent girl? Typically, they're not. Right. So that cross, uh, I don't know about legally, I believe legally, at least in the state of Connecticut, I believe the legal age of consent is 16, correct? I don't know. I think it is. Um, It's been a long time since I had to worry about that. (laughs) You might want to double check that because these things change all the time. But your typical 18-year-old, 19-year-old man is not interested in in an adolescent girl. That in itself is... The one thing we know about um, people who sexually abuse other people is by the time they're caught, they have many, many victims. Right. Almost always, many, many victims that didn't speak up. It, you know, it's it's been going on forever. So where there's smoke, there's usually fire. I don't know if I can say that, but, you know, if everybody's worried about it and everybody thinks that, that that's what happened and there's a history of it in the family, Right. Seems likely or very possible. People had been noticing troubling things about Doreen since she was very young. One was Tom Pannone, Doreen's fifth grade teacher from the Canterbury School in Waterbury, just one of the many learning institutions Mark and Sharon filed her in and out of. Tom called me last spring to discuss Doreen's behavior in class after he saw the news about my investigation for Faded Out. The fourth or the fifth grade, 
who said that um, she just always seemed very, so this is obviously younger, but she just always seemed very sad um, yep. and would stare into space. Yeah. Um, but that she was a good student and she mm-hmm. was friendly enough and, you know, achieving where she needed to be achieving. But he said every once in a while, I think it happened two or three times, she would just start screaming at one of her classmates. Really? Out of nowhere, yeah. Okay. And he didn't remember why. Okay. So would that be reflective of something? Well, anything could be. If it, okay. you know, it. I, I, the, the question would be, why does everybody suspect this is happening? If this keeps coming up around her, mm-hmm. why does everybody think that? Do they think that because of the way she was behaving, or do they think that because of what they know about this man? And Doreen's trouble seemed to run deeper. A few times Tom came around Doreen's desk and found her with her hands down her pants. At first he assumed it was an itch and wrote it off. So it bothered him later when he saw her do it again. The thing is with with a child, their body responds like like other people's do when it's sexually stimulated. Just because they're children doesn't mean that they don't have sexual feelings. So just like you know raising children and toddlers, they are touching themselves all the time until they're told not to do that in the room with other people. But a child that's been sexually abused, now they've been sexually aroused, and they don't have the um, foresight and the and the discipline to say to themselves, okay, I can't keep doing this. It feels good, so I'm just going to do it. Um, a child who's been sexually abused is going to be more likely to do more of that in places where they, you know, typically would be frowned upon. Okay. They can't stop doing it because it's happened to them, and it's it's twisted every normal thing up into a into nothing makes sense okay so a child will become can become sexually preoccupied but not really even understand that's what's happening to them right they don't really know it's sexual it's you know it's just a thing that's happening to them it just becomes so convoluted and so i think all children when they've been violated like that know that they've been violated to to some level, mm-hmm. there's just sort of like a biological understanding that this isn't appropriate. But when it's a person of authority or your parent or your family member, it gets all twisted up with, oh, well, somebody I trust wouldn't do this to me if it was bad. Right. But it, they don't, this doesn't feel right. To, you know, it just becomes, it's almost like the child just, everything is chaos in their brain. Nothing makes sense. Right. So their behavior is going to become like, like that, where where they do things that just don't make sense, except for if you add in the explanation that they've been abused. It wasn't until the school district trained its teachers on the signs of sexual abuse in the 90s when Tom realized what someone might have been doing to Doreen. And by that time, Doreen was already long gone. Tom would tell me later that when he found out she was missing, he called the Wallingford PD to offer any information that they might need. Yeah, the cop told him. Go gather her educational record and bring it to us. Mark kept moving Doreen from school to school until that wasn't enough, and he took his family to the magical kingdom of New York State. Doreen started to call Donna regularly to complain about feeling cloistered and repressed. Donna went there with her sisters and drove from elementary school to elementary school until they found Doreen. They pulled her out of class and put her on a plane to the fairy godmother in this story, her grandmother, Jane, in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Jane said Mark was a stark raving maniac when he found out his daughter had slipped from his clutches, calling the girl's grandmother to curse her out. 
Jane says he probably would have killed her if he could, but he didn't have enough money to travel to get Doreen and rest her back to Connecticut, so for a while, Doreen lived in the sunshine. This isn't Cinderella. Just because Doreen was safe from whatever or whoever was plaguing her in Connecticut or New York doesn't mean she was happy. Jane told me she thought Doreen was afraid of Mark, but that she was also under his control, and her time away from him made Doreen very bitter. But even though he couldn't have Doreen physically, he could write to her. I think he was, I think he just was doing things to her and we just didn't know because it, it just wasn't normal. Her behavior wasn't normal. Um, she lived with me. In Florida, right? Yeah, she lived with me for a couple of years and her, and he would write letters that were really, you know, I, it was sickening. You know, I love you and, you know, deeply, deep stuff. But she, you don't write to a little kid. Right. Well, you could write to a little kid, but, you know. Not like that. It wasn't, uh, it was like unusual. Let's put it that way. Okay. It wasn't what you would expect. And, you know, I was ignorant to the fact of of things that were going on because I I never had to deal with that in my life. Right. You know, so I just, I didn't understand fully what was going on. But I know now. (laughs) Was, um, was Doreen showing you those letters? Oh, yeah, she showed me them. Oh, yeah. I, actually, I read them before. I would read them before he, she read them. Okay. You know, I wanted to make sure everything was okay. You know, and it, it wasn't bad. I mean, it was, like, too mushy. You know what I mean? It was too mushy for a little kid, if you can understand what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> that's really weird. But. Like, if that's not the kind of relationship you should be having with... Your kid. No, no. You just say, I love you, I miss you, I can't wait to see you, stuff like that. You don't write. It's just, it was just a mushy thing. And it was horrible the way he put But, I mean, there wasn't nothing wrong with it, but it was the way he put it, you know? Later, I brought the letters up with Karen Calcaterra. When Mark was in and out of jail, he would write everybody letters uh-huh. from jail, including the aunts. That really? he had abused. Really? Yes. You'd always, they said, get his letters. And then the grandmother told me that um, when Doreen was down in Florida, Mark would send Doreen letters as well. Did anybody read those letters? The grandmother read the letters. And? And then gave them to Doreen. Were they inappropriate? Yes. Really? She said, at first she said they were overly mushy. hmm and I said, she said, you don't say things like that to a kid. And I said, well, I guess it depends on what the overly mushy right. thing is. And I think the grandmother's words, one of her examples was something like, I can't wait to hold you. Okay. That is something a parent would say to a child that you wouldn't think twice about unless you knew something about the parent that, that creeped you out. Then you would read that differently. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. So what you know about this person shapes your outlook. Shapes how you see that letter. Okay. So I might write to my son, I wish I could, you know. Kiss you all over. Yeah, I miss something you so like much. I just want to squeeze you or something that, that's completely innocent because he's far away and I miss him. But if you believed me to be somebody who had abused children, you would hear that sentence for me completely differently. Jane saw echoes of the way that Mark had treated her daughter, Donna, and the hold he had on Doreen. If she wore something that was a little, little low, I mean, just a little low, like, say it was like a 
a scoop neck. But I mean, it's not really, not really though. You can't see anything. Oh, he he would have a fit. She got to go get something that wouldn't show anything. Right. And he was that. That's stupid. You know, because you didn't see nothing. You know, like a tank top. You wore a tank top. Oh no. Right. I don't wear a tank top. You and I find that I wear it myself. Right. Yeah, everybody does. Right. I know. <laughs> ridiculous because um you know i know he was dressing doreen that way as well um oh, yeah doreen oh god yeah. yeah she she couldn't even wear a bathing suit so donna and the and her sisters were telling me a little bit about you know that doreen would want to swim at your house but she would want to swim naked too right 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 but she did do it yeah she did do it she did and you know my husband, well, when he was alive, I think he almost, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. You know, he said, you know, get some clothes on, you know. But she she couldn't, he, he because he was worried about her getting, he knew if she wasn't fully dressed and she had a tan, this is what it was, if she had a tan, he would have known. When I brought this up with Karen, she told me Mark's strictness about Doreen's body might have reflected his need to control it, to convince her it wasn't her own. I remember what Donna, Debbie, and Carol told Sarah Dimio and me about the underwear photos, how Mark had talked his daughter into it. He told her that's what she wanted. Supposedly she, she wanted. wanted. He didn't think it was right, so but just posing. That's your Yeah, well, that's what you were, that's what that you were telling so me. That, like, like, well, if you're going to put on a bathing suit, why not just put on your underwear? Yeah, no. But then take pictures of it? That is well, it's like I was saying sometime earlier, where I think it was um, it was it's gaslighting, you know? Yes. Like he's turning it around, like oh, well, oh this if you're is gonna, what you want. Well, if you if you're gonna want to run around in a bathing suit like that, why not just put on your underwear? Mm-hmm. And why don't I just take pictures? And if that's the kind of person that you want to be, like you know, flipping it around on her, being like you caused it. It's important to note that in the 32 years since Doreen disappeared. Mark has always staunchly denied that there was film in that camera. If I had to guess why he was saying there's no film in the camera, it's to make her believe that, what, they're play acting? They're just pretending? I don't know, but maybe she wouldn't be willing to stand there if she thought there was film in the camera. Okay. You know? I mean, you have that whole dynamic of this is an adult telling me what to do. I'm not allowed to say no to my adult, to adults in my life. However, something about this isn't right. I know it. Now I'm like stuck in this in-between place of what do I do? So if somebody says, well, I'm going to take pictures, but there's no film, well, then it's okay. I'll just stand here and let them. Okay. Right? So that would be a way, a manipulative mechanism to get her to do what he wanted if he was, in fact, abusing her. In Florida, Doreen would act out, sexually coming on to a little neighborhood boy who was around her age, which was nine or so. Jane was disturbed. She took this new information and added it in her mind to the letters and the naked swimming. She asked Doreen if Mark had been touching her. Doreen insisted that he had not. Doreen also baited her Uncle Joe, Jane and Joe's fourth child and only son. Joe was a freshman or a sophomore in high school at the time and was irritated to have to share his parents with this interloper. When I spoke to Joe, he was angry. He admitted he had liked Mark, thought his prison tattoos were cool liked to help him when Mark worked on cars. He was just a high schooler, after all, but he feels guilty about it now. 
Today, Joe also doesn't want his mother spoken ill of. She had it hard, he told me. Doreen went missing just as Joe graduated high school, and he carries that around with him. I bet a lot of you know what it's like to associate a nice thing with a not nice thing. I can't celebrate the 4th of July without a pang in my heart. Speaking of heartache, I know that my interview with Jane has deeply hurt Donna and Stephanie in the past, and for that I am truly sorry. I know Jane loved Doreen very much. She thinks of her granddaughter every day when she makes toast. I think about her every day. She used to toast her toast just like I do. <laughs> and I think of her every day I do toast. <laughs> what do you mean she used to toast her toast? Doreen used to toast her toast just like me. How does that, what do you mean? Tell me. Well, she had to have butter on every part of the bread. <laughs> and I do the same thing. <laughs> and when I do it, I think of her every day. <laughs> Yeah, if I have toast, I go, this is Doreen toast. <laughs> I know Stephanie's had a bit of a hard time, you know, because, and Donna too. You know, it, it dredges up what we're doing, dredges up a lot of stuff. And at first I thought, you know, Donna was so stoic. Like she was so, you know, put together and she was crying at one point. And Stephanie said, I don't think I've ever seen my mother cry about this. Um, I I was too. <laughs> that you were. I was talking about the toast. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's so stupid. No, it's... <laughs> you know, but I'm going to be okay. I'll recover. I'm sorry. No. I don't mean to do this. No, please. Please. It's... I mean... I've been crying. I've been crying. And I just met your whole family two months ago. And you should cry. I know. I, they told me what the big yeah, I did because I really, I really like them. Oh my god! You know, <laughs> let's take a breath for a second and turn to Kate, a bright spot in this investigation. Kate was Doreen's sidekick from her brief stint at Westwood's Academy in Hamden. With all the turmoil that was going on in Doreen's life, it's nice to have someone who can put Doreen exactly where she was on a specific day, at a specific time. When Doreen wrote that inscription in Kate's yearbook. Have a great summer. See you around. Love, Doreen. She proved that she was here, doing banal things like signing a yearbook and graduating from the seventh grade, even as she wrestled with darker forces. Kate was a self-proclaimed nerd and joined Westwoods late in the year, too, so she and Doreen gravitated toward each other. Doreen was beautiful, Kate said, with big, thick hair she wore up, Easty Girl style, with lots of hairspray and banana clips. Her makeup was always perfect. But there was something darker about her that Kate only sees now. These were all there. It was completely obvious. Mm -hmm. But as a 12-year-old kid, you know, you just see this girl who looks really pretty. She clearly has the attention of boys. She's very popular. She had a very loud voice. Like, okay. she almost had, like, that, that Brooklyn type of voice, that raspy, adult kind of throaty voice. You know what I mean? And it was like she commanded your attention when you were with her. Yeah. And so she just had like this this personality that was just larger than we were. Kate remembered the underwear modeling Doreen spoke about and how she always seemed obsessed with boys. She talked about boys all the time. I mean, to the point where that's why we always thought she was making it up being a model, because yeah. we were like, oh, she's bragging. She's talking about boys again. And she always dressed so grown up. And I don't remember if she said she had done it with a boy at that time, but I remember she used to be very graphic about, 
you know, sex. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were all, none of us knew for sure if she was just full of garbage, if she was telling us stories, or yeah. if it, but she was always very, like, braggy about that kind of thing. Here's what Karen said about Doreen's confessions to Kate. There's an indication from her friend, her seventh grade classmate, Doreen told her and other classmates that she was going into New York on the weekends for modeling shoots and that she was modeling in her underwear, that she'd been doing it since she was six and that she had an agent. Okay. When I told the cops that, one of the police officers said to me, well, seventh grade kids make up shit all the time. But why? Why would you make that story up to your friends? My thought, and let's just remember, too, there's underwear photos. Right. So it doesn't sound like anything was made up. If it was, it was, um, like, aggrandized a little bit. But I would think you would tell your friend that to make you feel better about yourself and what you're doing. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So if that kid, that child was on my couch in my office and I was told or she said that that kind of a story, I would want to know... Why? Like, what? why would you pick that thing to okay. make yourself feel better? And, and in my mind, it would be a way to alleviate the guilt of doing this thing by telling somebody about it and getting it off your chest, but in a way that didn't get anybody in trouble or call attention to everything that was going on. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and it makes it, I think, too, more glamorous... Absolutely. So it addresses the shame okay. that, she, that that person would feel if, if that was happening to them. She doesn't really, wouldn't really understand why, mm -hmm. but there's the guilt and the shame. Right. So okay. we defend ourselves from guilt and shame when we feel it. We come up with explanations for things. But Doreen's time to confess is over. Whatever happened to her was not her fault. And in recent days... More and more people have been looking for another kind of confession. Here's Mark's brother Brad in another email he sent last Wednesday, March 25th. Yo, Mark, do you remember this letter that you sent to mom from prison? Probably not, but just a bit of nostalgia for you. If there's anything else that you'd like to see, just let me know, because I've got plenty. As the deeply religious person that you claim to be, I'm sure that you are sorry about killing Doreen, so why not just turn yourself in? Heartened by Brad's refusal to back down, another relative of Mark's chimes in on Thursday, March 26th, with an email of their own. Mark, after reading your letter, I feel the need to chime in here. I agree with Brad. Turn yourself in and be done with this. In your letter, you mention, I've never felt so much for any girl as I do for her, in regard to Donna. Can you then explain why you felt the need to sexually abuse Donna's sisters at the very same time you are feeling so much for Donna? And then to carry it even further, to sexually abuse your own daughter, Doreen, that is despicable. I must say I never suspected you could stoop that low. I always thought you killed Doreen, but thought it was by mistake and not intentional. To now know that you are abusing her the whole time, it is unspeakable. How do you live with yourself? How can I be related to you? They're going to get you. You might as well man up and turn yourself in. This podcast is a catharsis for so many, including me, and, I hope, you. Justice is such an important thing, and it feels so good to yell loudly about it. But no matter how any of us feel about Mark, this project is ultimately Doreen's. 
Here I am talking about why her story draws me in and why I think it draws in so many of you. Well, she was also, um, she had been taken away from her father because she had called her mom and her aunts and they came and picked her up and put her on that plane to Florida. And the grandmother said that she was extremely, Doreen was extremely um, angry Mm -hmm. and spiteful. Because she got sent away? She wasn't sure. Okay. Well, how would you feel? Confused. If, if the adults in your life were violating your boundaries, throwing you from one place to another with no explanation, shipping you off away from everything you know, bringing you back. I mean, it sounds like utter, total chaos. Right. How can a child be um, behave in an organized healthy manner when they're surrounded by disorganization and chaos and violations and fear and right well so let me ask you this then because i told you we got about 30 photos Mm -hmm. from her brother Mm -hmm. um her smile in those photos is absolutely genuine Mm -hmm. it strikes me she looks like she's radiating happiness yeah she's got her brother and her sister with her in every picture and from having spoken to her brother, the memories of her, I mean, he loved her uh-huh. greatly. Um, I guess it, it sounds like a silly question, maybe, but it's obviously possible to have that part of your personality function. Sure, sure. Even if chaos is happening to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. People survived concentration camps and found joy in, <sighs> in them. It's the, it's the human spirit, the 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 need to survive you know so even the most horrifying circumstances people are able to find joy in them and and often that's the thing that keeps the person going and makes them resilient is the ability to find joy in the midst of horror absolute horror yeah that's the word i was going to use was going to be resiliency yeah you know i think i've read somewhere that like children are more resilient than adults absolutely yeah why is that because, I, I mean, I don't know my personal um, opinion or theory is that because they have infinite hope, you know, they don't become cynical and, and pessimistic until they're old enough to understand what's happening around them. But the innocence of being a child, there's always something better around the corner. Everything's new. Everything is... is uh, a revelation so maybe tomorrow will be better right and we as adults get get to a place where we realize well t- maybe tomorrow won't be better right but aren't don't we also have more perspective like we have a lot more perspective and we don't have magical thinking children believe in magic you know they believe one time my son said to me he was like seven years old he was playing a video game and and he said to me mom when I die how many more lives do I get yeah and and I You know, it just floored me when he said it because he really did believe because of the video games and stuff that it's no big deal if you die, you get another life or two or three or four. Mm -hmm. And having not grown up with video games, that would have never crossed my mind, but it crossed his because of what he was seeing in front of him. Um, Children are, are amazing in their capacity to survive things. And it's, it's horrifying what so many children have to survive. 
So being able to believe that, okay, this terrible thing is happening to me, but someday a prince is going to ride up on a horse and rescue me, or my fairy godmother is going to come and take me away from this, is possible for a long time. You know, I think even as teenagers, we still believe in that sometimes. Yeah. So the ability to have hope, I think children just have a lot of it. They have a lot of it because they try, you know, I, I don't know. That's just my personal theory, but I could be wrong. So that's where I leave Doreen in that beautiful prison, that castle on the hill. And if people want to remember her as Lydia, so be it. To be Lydia Dietz means to be a bit strange and unusual, and sometimes a little bit uncertain and distrustful of the world, as I think we all are, especially now. In the face of everything, Lydia Dietz was brave and funny and smart, but the name doesn't just bring Winona Ryder and Beetlejuice to mind. I looked it up. Lydia Perperea was Paul's first convert at Philippi in first century Greece. There is no mention of a husband or father in her story, meaning that she was one of the first women in recorded Christian history who wasn't tied to anyone, who lived her own life undefined by a man. She came from a small town called Akhisar, or Thyatira, famous for its dye works. Purple dye works, to be exact, because Lydia means she who makes purple robes. So all hail Princess Lydia, whose life wasn't just one big dark room, because she had friends, and she had joys, and she had people who loved her. All hail Princess Doreen, who draped herself in purple and headed off to face the evil at her door. If it's not-